Congress is kind of created and meant to be or should be accessible to everyone. And sometimes the systems that we have propped up make it uh, inaccessible, but it really shouldn't be that way because our system is um, you know, an ideology designed to make sure that this sort of input is gained from the people. Welcome to Social Medicine On Air, a podcast where we explore the vibrant world of social medicine. We learn through conversations with healthcare practitioners, researchers, and activists who are working to create a more just and healthy world. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jonas Atzelus. I'm a PGY1 internal medicine um, at Boston Medical Center here in Boston. Uh, one of your co-hosts, and today we have two awesome guests, uh, Maria Penella and Elena Jumin. I'm really bad with name, so they will say the name again and they will introduce themselves. Hi everyone, um, so my name is Lena Yumin and I'm a student studying political science and hopefully public health at Columbia University up in New York, but at the moment I am stationed in Miami, Florida. Hello everyone, my name is Maria Pinella and I am also a Florida resident and I am a, I have a bachelor's degree in health sciences from the University of Central Florida and currently I'm working with the Fund for Global Health as an advocacy fellow. And my name is Brendan Johnson, uh, one of your other co-hosts and I am a medical student at the University of Minnesota and currently a fellow at uh, the Theology, Medicine and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. And a big welcome to you two. Um, would you guys mind maybe starting by telling us a little bit about uh, the intersection of uh, the current COVID pandemic and uh, tuberculosis, the changes that are happening in the tuberculosis world? This was new to me as I was learning about it. Yeah, definitely. So just to give a little background, one of the main areas of global health that we focus on in the Fund for Global Health is tuberculosis and making sure that Congress is putting proper funding into U.S.-funded tuberculosis programs. And so during the COVID-19 pandemic, we've had, you know, around the world, a lot of shifting happening with different medical programs. And so one of the things that we've noticed the most is how tuberculosis is being affected. And just to give a little background on tuberculosis, it is the number one infectious disease killer of adults worldwide, and it averages killing about 4,000 adults every single day. So um, in a year, that's about 1.5 million people dying from tuberculosis. And now during the pandemic, we've seen a lot of different things come up that are affecting these outcomes. For example, with COVID-19 lockdowns, a lot of patients aren't able to travel to get their proper treatments or diagnoses, so that can uh, possibly lead their tuberculosis to eventually become drug resistant, which would be very dangerous. And also it just leads to a lack of diagnosis on a wider spread scale in areas that have high tuberculosis outbreaks. So it's not, we're not able to collect proper data on that. Um, also, healthcare resources have been reallocated heavily to treat COVID-19. For example, um, different physicians, nurses, healthcare staff, uh, treatment facilities, different clinics around the world have all been shifted to manage COVID patients. So it just brings a backsliding into tuberculosis, which can cause um, 
some real serious issues down the line if it's not addressed properly throughout these times. So there's there's a lot of different organizations right now focusing on the importance of tuberculosis during COVID-19. And uh, for the Fund for Global Health, we're just trying to focus mainly on pushing Congress to support these uh, global health programs outside of COVID-19. And of course, we're not downplaying the severity of COVID-19, but we are trying to work to spread awareness on how important it is to continue supporting these other global health programs, such as tuberculosis. Right, and if I can add to that really quickly, um, I think that it's also really, really important to just kind of spark conversation on this, especially because um, here in the United States, there's not as many cases of tuberculosis as there are obviously in other nations. But I think that it is still a problem that's less talked about here. For example, we have thousands of cases still in the United States and have had them for 2019 and 2018. Um, And so with everything going on with COVID-19, it's really worrisome that these resources are backsliding internationally and domestically because there have been TB outbreaks in the United States in past decades. So we just want to make sure that, you know, a pandemic doesn't end anywhere um, unless it's over everywhere. So working internationally to make sure that everybody has access to resources to fight tuberculosis is really important just for everyone internationally, but also domestically. Yeah, uh, this is a, an extremely important topic, especially for people from um, the global south, like low low income and middle income countries, um, and especially in the context where um, I guess the U.S. president was trying to take um, um, the U.S. from the WHO, um, not sending funding to them. Do you guys think that also? impact the outcome of of tuberculosis by having the U.S. outside of WHO? What could be the impact that you can foresee um, for tuberculosis and other infectious disease? Um, Yeah, that's that's a really good question. And I'm no expert on that specific area on how it might affect it. But if if we put this widespread information out there that global health organizations can't be trusted, then it just, as Lena was mentioning, it kind of brings the conversation into a negative light rather than a positive light. And it could possibly have some negative outcomes. Um, And that's something I'd, I'd actually be interested in learning more about. Yeah. I'm also not very, um, I'm not an expert on the WHO or how that funding is exactly allocated within it, but just based on the work that we've done, kind of looking at how the U.S. government works with the WHO and other large organizations like UNICEF and that sort of thing, it seems like a lot of that funding does go towards kind of doing research on primary health care in other places or in um, on ailments like tuberculosis. And so on top of the fact, like Maria was saying, that the conversation tra- takes a very different and dangerous uh, direction once that happens um, it's also that perhaps these primary care programs won't receive as much and obviously primary health care is really tied to all these ailments and it's so important to make sure that we understand the importance of giving everybody access to that kind of health care so i definitely agree with what maria was saying yeah it seems like that really ties into uh, some of the resources that you guys had sent before this conversation and and that we'll link to in the show notes but it seems like that sense of national and international collaboration is very important for building kind of the the research structures, the distribution structures, um, and the collaboration that's necessary to keep 
um, drugs and diagnostics and, and, and all these different um, important aspects of meeting a challenge like tuberculosis across the world. And it, it certainly seems that uh, to keep the pressure up on a disease like tuberculosis is very important. And you kind of need that. You need a lot of consistency to fight um, to fight a, a, a disease like tuberculosis. Um, and that's one of the things that's currently being lost. Yeah. And just to go off of that a little bit, uh, one of our other areas of focus within Congress is to ensure that proper policies are in place to support primary health care during humanitarian disasters, because through research and through historical instances, it's become apparent that healthcare systems are one of the first infrastructures to break down during these humanitarian disasters. And in terms of COVID, um, I think it's very it could possibly be classified as a humanitarian disaster. You know, this pandemic has affected everyone around the world. And we've seen that. We've seen these healthcare systems collapse and not be able to uh, support primary healthcare standard exams and standard treatments, like we said, for HIV and tuberculosis, because it's just so over under-resourced. And that, that brings an important... It brings up an important topic of supporting primary health care at all times because primary health care is the system that will be able to support these things long term and not not cause us to see all of this backtracking and progress that has already been made in global health. And so making sure that primary health care systems have a strong foundation is one of the most important areas of global health, in my opinion. Um, so that's that's a little bit of another piece of work we do with the Fund for Global Health is trying to make sure that proper funding goes into primary health care programs because that's one of the more underfunded areas of global health. Hmm. So you guys are helping us to, you know, you're helping to remind the, the health community about the things that we're forgetting at any given time. You know, if we're focusing on COVID, you're reminding us of tuberculosis. And in, in a humanitarian disaster, it's like, what are the basics that need to be covered? Yeah. And just one thing to add on to that is I think COVID-19 has woken up a lot of people and showed us how incredibly interconnected this world is. You know, Mm -hmm. an infectious disease can spread to every corner of this world. And if you think about it, comparing um, COVID to tuberculosis, they're both respiratory illnesses. So they both have the capacity to spread quickly. And, you know, like I said, I'm not trying to downplay COVID-19 because it's a very serious illness as well. But there are some some big differences between the two. Um, And one of the most striking ones for me is that with tuberculosis, there's already well-known and proven treatments and preventions that can be put in place. And it actually is pretty affordable to treat patients with a course of drugs. I think it costs about $40 to $42 for a course of drugs per patient. Um, And we already know that these are effective, but for some reason they're not being reached around the world. And I think that just shows a, a big difference between COVID and tuberculosis. You know, we're still trying to figure out the proper treatments at, to put in place for COVID. And tuberculosis has been around for years, and we're still unable to reach those necessary milestones to end the fight on tuberculosis. So to add to what she was saying, um, I think Maria also brought up like a really interesting point because I think sometimes we forget that when these illnesses come up, they take like almost years to decades to really fight and make sure like uh, developing the treatment and developing the vaccines is almost like the very beginning first step to really making sure that a pandemic 
is able to end because tuberculosis has was the leading killer in U.S. cities way back in like 1913. And we're still facing the fight against tuberculosis and it's now the world's leading infectious disease killer. And it's over a century later. Um, and I think that that can inform us for battling COVID-19 as well. And just kind of remind us that we need to make sure that whatever does pop up, that we maintain our fight on all fronts because we really have to make sure that we don't, um, like Maria was saying with the resources that are backsliding right now, that we don't uh, lessen kind of the attention that we're giving to one or the other. Um, you know, tuberculosis has been like a, a disease that has been here like for a very long time, like since the beginning of human history. And if tuberculosis has come under the light, it has been mostly through the HIV, uh, the AIDS epidemic. You know, it's like tuberculosis has been there. Nobody care about it because it was the poor people disease. And as soon as the HIV epidemic start, like um, you start, you start seeing the HIV epidemic. Now tuberculosis is coming to light because many people was dying from tuberculosis. And one of the reasons that HIV brought light is because HIV wasn't only affected the poor but also affected the rich. And when things affect the rich, now it's become uh, uh, the main it become part of the main conversation. And I'm seeing the same things also happening with the COVID nineteen. Um, what it's a, the COVID nineteen not only affect the poor but also affect the rich, and 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 now the the the, the tuberculosis is is uh, returning into the light because the COVID nineteen um uh, is showing like a lot of social inequities. So I would like you to I would like you to if you guys have some comment on that. How do you guys see that sense of social inequity when things happen affect only the poorest people? compare when things affect the poor and the rich. I think that's a really interesting point that you brought up because what we even see, and this is just from my perspective from seeing in America how the pandemic has been handled, especially in my state of Florida, which is um, which is handled in a very particular way. But I've seen that a lot of people who are, because COVID-19 affects people a lot who have comorbidities. And a lot of those with comorbidities are those from the low income strata because they don't have adequate access to health care. So a lot of the people who almost um, not ignore but downplay health recommendations in terms of wearing masks and keeping safe and making sure to quarantine are those who are um, often from, I feel, the upper income strata or the middle uh, class because they have less of a risk of contracting COVID-19. So that's kind of one of the inequities that that's brought to light in terms of access to healthcare and who is more susceptible. And I think also the idea of when a pandemic like this breaks out and it's a respiratory illness where you have to um, maintain quarantine and try not to go outside, try not to go to work. A lot of people from the lower income strata can't afford to do that. And they have uh, their essential workers basically that have to go to work and have to do these things. So they're trying their best to uphold health precautions, but it's really, really difficult when you're in that sort of position. Um, so I think one thing that COVID-19 has done to kind of shift the conversation between healthcare and class and healthcare and inequity is bring to light how intertwined everything is in terms of the economy, in terms of the welfare that we provide people who are suffering, um, and how that's connected to disease and illness and spread. And that can, I think, inform how we also 
focus and look on tuberculosis as a disease, like you said, that has historically really hurt um, lower income nations and lower income populations. So tell us more about the kind of research and accountability um, of USAID, uh, the United States Agency for International Development, um, and other global health initiative. I know that some of your work has gone into uh, researching their uh, dynamics and behaviors and like how do you guys help to hold an organization like that accountable? So that's a really um, cool process to actually go about because all of the data for global health funding, especially when looking at the USAID affiliated with the US government and the funding it gives to these international organizations like UNICEF, WHO, and other partners is all online. All the data is open and accessible. But the problem is that when you start sifting through it and looking through it, there's a lot of discrepancies that come up in terms of funding. And that's one of the really interesting things that we found. Um, one of the my jobs as research was to figure out, you know, does all the um, accounts, do all the accounts match up in terms of the funds that they say they're providing? And it's actually interesting to see that they don't. And so, for example, there's different accounts in the USAID that provide international health aid. And so what you compare what the USAID reports with what those accounts report, one of them is less than the other. And so it's really hard to start on an advocacy aim where you're saying, okay, we want to invest this particular percent into healthcare whenever you give international assistance, when we don't even know what the baseline for that is because the percentages invested in health are different as reported from that. So we've really been working hard to even start with baseline accountability and just getting the um, getting non-discrepant information from different organizations so we know where we're starting in terms of international health aid. Um, and one of the other reasons, like one of the other kind of sides of accountability is less on the funding side and more on making sure that the projects that they invest in have the best possible outcome for the people they're trying to reach. So for example, a lot of the times when funding is given, it's just given for healthcare resources and not necessarily invested um, to make sure that those resources are used in the best manner to help the population. The example that we talk about most often is a lot of the funding that has gone into malaria bed nets, which are obviously so important to make sure um, that that is also uh, that ailment is also battled. So the USAID has given a lot of funding to particular programs that give out bed nets, and one, for example, in Mozambique. But it turned out that many of the inhabitants there were actually using the bed nets for different things, and so. They needed nets for fishing so that they could get food, and but the bed nets are coated with toxins that not only harm the sea life in the area, but actually make the food toxic. So they had ended up using the bed nets for that instead of you know using them to protect themselves from malaria, and that actually not only did it not help the malaria rates in the region as much as it could have, but it also like in turn harmed the population. So a lot of I think what's really important for people who are looking into global and public health is to realize that it takes a lot to make sure that a program is successful for the population that you're reaching. And kind of our job is to make sure that we figure out these programs and whether they were successful and see if they weren't, then how, how can they be improved and how can we make sure that they are? Um, just to add on to that as well, the way I kind of explain it is there's a very big difference between outputs of a program and outcomes. Um, for example, the mosquito nets, if you're handing out 
10,000 mosquito nets, but your results aren't reflecting the successes of that, it, is it really an effective program? Um, just because you're putting out a lot of resources doesn't mean you're having strong outcomes. And so one of the things we try to encourage Congress to enact in their policies is to make sure that any U.S. funded bilateral global health programs have the requirement to report these outcomes back to Congress because that's currently not a requirement for uh, U.S. funded global health programs. So I think what we're trying to work to do is put in a better system, encourage Congress to put in a better system in place that can hold these organizations and these projects accountable. And then that way we can look at these outcomes, look at this hard data and see, okay, should we continue to put funding into this area, our taxpayer dollars into this area, or should we con or should we try to look at it and see what we need to fix before we continue just throwing money in it. And, and, and do you guys, you know, I, I'm speaking now from a perspective of someone who grew up in Haiti and, uh, and a place where there's a lot of NGOs, a place where there's a lot of program, like international program. How do you guys make sure, I, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm, I'm just curious. How do you guys um, know, like the, the, the NGOs on the, on the ground, um, are making the work like they are really uh, doing what they are supposed to do. Um, the reason is because something that we see often that happen in Haiti is you got those international NGOs coming, and many of them don't have a sense of what they are doing, or many of them don't really have experience, um, or, or many of them bring idea from outside trying to implement it in Haiti and a different social and cultural aspect and you end up having things that doesn't work uh, and I think one of the biggest example is the um, Red Cross after the, the earthquake that received half a billion dollars um, to help build houses they end up building six houses and then give the money to other NGOs because at the end of the day, they couldn't do anything. So, like advocating, receiving the money, go uh, on on the field and try to do the work. Or do you guys put like gatekeepers or make sure like at each level uh, we are doing what we are supposed to do? I actually have some experience working with NGOs, so I've seen pros and cons of all of this. And you can't just have leaders from an outside country come over and try to say this is this is the best way to do it this is how we're going to reach our milestones because the second you do that you're not going to be gaining the trust um, you're not going to be understanding the culture the right way uh, you're not going to be understanding the best way to implement these projects and so in my personal opinion i think it's very important if you have, especially an outside NGO coming in, that they need to seek out local partners and get answers from the local community rather than just jumping in and going with what they think is best. Hmm. You know, I've been chewing on the example that, that you've brought up um, about the coated mosquito nets and how they were used for fishing nets. And I think that's that's a wonderful example of kind of a silver bullet solution that um, somebody I'm sure spent a lot of uh, time and effort coming up with and implementing and funding and all these things. And then when the rubber hits the road, like it didn't match with the reality of local needs and conditions. And I was also curious, um, one, of, one of the elements of the work that you both do 
is kind of this like um, research and then turning that into lobbying and advocacy at kind of the governmental level. And that's something that, you know, as kind of a future clinician myself, something that I'm quite unfamiliar with, maybe you could talk about like, what does that work look like um, when you're trying to 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 do lobbying or advocacy for changing these these large scale uh, funding changes, for example, and why do you see the value on that work specifically? Like, wh- why have you been drawn to this element of um, or these possibilities? Yeah. So, um, on in terms of the value of the work, I think it's hard sometimes for individuals to feel and see that they can have an impact on such large systems as the one that we're talking about but it's actually once you get into the work and you dive in and you start talking with people you see very quickly that it is extremely important and extremely impactful so one of the things that one of the personal experiences that i had was last year i met with um, the district director in my district for my congressional representative and I was trying to ask them about the global fund and what they knew about it and its programs and the district director told me that she did not know what the global fund was and neither did the representative and that's probably why she didn't sign on to legislation increasing investment and so that simple conversation that I had and I never would have thought of that before likely increased the representative's awareness of the global fund and hopefully push them to increase investment when the next bill comes around So I think one thing that people forget is that when we're thinking of the government and such large systems and of congressional folks who have such large influence, there are things that are missed. And that's why advocates are so important because they kind of fill the gaps. And so basically in terms of the different kind of work that we do in advocacy, uh, a lot of what we do is trying to talk with congressional staffers and with congressional folks to talk to them about international health aid and increasing that and what they think the challenges are to that and how we can compromise with them. One way that we do that is we try to contact them directly via letter writing through email. Uh, We try and call them and then kind of like an indirect way to gain their attention is through letter to the editors to local newspapers. It's actually we've Uh, someone in our organization talked to someone, uh, a representative or a senator about this, and they said that they do pay attention when their names come up in the media, like in newspaper or on social media. So kind of writing to local news stations and uh, with a piece saying, we would really like our senator or representative to increase funding for this or to try and maintain accountability for this is one really effective way of doing it. Um, And the other thing that we've been thinking is kind of organizing like town halls with these uh, congressional folks to talk to them with partner organizations on kind of the state of global health today and what they think for international health investment. And that's been successful in a few other states that we've been in. And another thing we usually do too is, well, for example, we have different teams in different states and we really focus on states that have their Congress people in SFOPs. And so um, what is SFOPs? For the state and foreign operations subcommittee okay thank you yes um and so the senators that are on that committee have a big say in where the funding goes for global health so that's kind of the teams we have built up to focus in those 
for those state senators. And Marco Rubio, for example, in Florida is on one. So that's why we have this Florida team. And we meet as a Florida team twice a week to talk about different ways we can increase advocacy. And it kind of gets trickled down from our advocacy director. And he sometimes will give us different tasks to work on. For example, we got the idea for the town hall from him. And um, so we have the Florida team working on it and there's other state teams as well working on their own versions of it. And then every single month we have a monthly call that brings all of us together from all of the different teams. And we usually try to have a staffer from one of the Congress people. Um, and so that's been a really great way to let the the representatives know that there's a lot of people that care about these issues because um, I believe it takes about 20 to 30 emails for an issue to really be brought to someone's attention in Congress because they're so busy working on so many different issues. So if if it's persistent, if the issue is persistent and keeps coming up, like Lena said, if they see their name in the media, that will bring attention to it and kind of help them realize that, okay, these these issues are out there and people care about them. Let me take a look at it. Yeah, um, one of the things that I see that is extremely important in your guys' work is that constant reminder that health is more than the clinical aspect, is that health is more than medicine. And you need policy um, um, policymakers, you need advocate, uh, 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 you need... You need everybody at the end of the day. It's like you need everybody to talk on the issue, uh, to address it, and to um, to say this is all the direction we're going to take, and and this is the science behind that. This is the result we intend to have. Um, I'm curious now to know, for example, somebody who has no political background or somebody who is in the uh, in the field or on the ground, and the, that person say, okay, I want to get involved. Uh, I want I want to also create some change, but I don't have access to Congress, for example. What could be some steps or some recommendation you think that could be good to take and that could probably uh, bring some kind of good result? I think that's such an important question because um, it's really important to make sure that this type of advocacy is accessible for everyone. Um, a lot of times it's just a lot of people who have studied public health or are focusing in public health who work on it uh, because other groups and other people with different backgrounds don't exactly know how to access the work. But I would one thing that I would say to that is that um, Congress is kind of created and meant to be or should be accessible to everyone. And sometimes the systems that we have propped up make it uh, inaccessible it's become so that it's hard to see your representative and it's hard to see your senator, but it really shouldn't be that way because our system is, um, you know, an ideology designed to make sure that this sort of input is gained from the people uh, within a nation because that's, you know, the point of this sort of governance. So one thing that I would say to that is even as an individual, if you feel like you can't have influence on these powers without being directly involved with an organization, you definitely can. I would go to any town halls that are being hosted virtually and try and talk with these staffers through Q&As and questions because they're seeming to host them a bit more frequently with everything going on virtually. I would definitely also try and get involved in any local public health organizations. There's a lot that kind of span the country that might be a little bit like seemingly underground because they're not as well known, but there's a lot of chapters in kind of niche areas that are still present. So I would definitely try and get involved with those because I feel that one of the things that 
global health advocacy organizations try and make sure to do is educate the people who are working with them on how to be an advocate and how to be an effective advocate because that's definitely one of the things that I learned as being part of a couple different global health advocacy groups. Um, I did not have knowledge with how to talk with Congress at all and the first meeting that I had with a congressional staffer was because of the connection that I had with one of the global health groups that I was a part of. So I think kind of getting involved and trying to seek out people who are already in the work and using them as mentors and learning from them is a really great way to kind of take a first um, dive into this sort of work. Yeah, and also there's a lot of weight that can come along with, you know, for example, you mentioned medical students, people that have expertise in these areas, medical students, physicians, especially in terms of global health, when Congress hears from people that work in this area every single day, I think their voices carry a little bit heavier than, you know, someone who doesn't have credentials in healthcare or in public health. And so, but, but again, you don't need those credentials to get involved. You can just write letters. And if 10 people write letters, it's going to be, you know, brought to their attention. But I think also trying to find your niche within advocacy where your voice may carry heavier and have a big impact. So, um, you know, there's so many different avenues you can take to get involved. It's just trying to find the right one for you and the one where you can have the most effect. Could you guys tell us a little bit more about how you came to this work and why it is compelling and exciting for you? Is there kind of a personal buy-in to this work or, or how did you um, find yourself working in the space of advocacy in this specific way? I I kind of always was drawn to healthcare and that's what I studied in college and you know planned to go into the medical field and I also got a really good opportunity in college to do basically like a cultural exchange program so I had the opportunity to work in Laos and also in Tanzania and for two years I went back to the same community in Laos up in the Long Prabang province and then for two and a half years I went back to the same community in Tanzania and um, I got to work very closely with locals and the local community and when I got to go abroad I saw a lot of different cracks that uh, cracks in the healthcare systems that you know could be fixed and it, it started to make me think a lot more about public health and one specific example I'll never forget is when I was working in Laos I was working on in this village called Sop Chem and that's where we did our cultural exchange program and the the community was right on the river so at that time it was back in 2017 the the Laotian government was partnering with the Chinese government to create hydroelectric dams with their rivers um, to produce electricity and a lot of that electricity was going to be exported to surrounding countries so um, that that was just my first introduction to the policy side of it um, and I'm going to get into how it ties into healthcare as well because like I mentioned, this this community I was working and living in was right on the river. And Laos, if you don't know, it's a very heavily mountainous country. And so in order to create these hydroelectric dams, the, the company called Power China, they were the ones directing the construction of it all. They would actually have to do dynamite blasts to the mountains to get proper materials to build. Um, and so when these dynamite blasts were happening over time, over the span of a few months, the community started to notice a change in their health. And 
you know, a lot of livestock was dying because of the chemicals that were released into the air. A lot of the rivers were becoming polluted and the fish were dying. Um, so, you know, if and on those rivers, fishing is a very big way of life. So, you know, ingesting those chemicals when you eat the fish. Um, a lot of the children in the community's lymph nodes were swelling up, something that had never happened before. And so the community started to notice these things. And so they they had to find a way to express that and this wasn't just happening in one community it was happening in a bunch of different communities in in Laos and so the government saw that and at one point the the construction company was doing about 10 blasts a day and so the government stepped in and said okay we need to decrease these blasts we need to maybe put them down to no more than three blasts a day that was kind of my first eye-opener to how important policy really is in terms of public health and global health because you realize that's what made me realize how interconnected public health and global health is. It's not just healthcare; it's economics, it's um, agriculture, it's infrastructure, it's everything. And so that was kind of my main motivation to just try and get into the policy side of it and learn more about the effects that policies really have on the global health world. Yeah, my story is much different from Maria's, and I just want to say that that was such a tragic but beautifully explained example. My kind of background is what makes me really um, invested in this work, because I was born in Canada, but my mom was actually born in Pakistan, so that's a low-income country in South Asia. And just growing up, I remember hearing stories from her all of the time on the illnesses that we talk about in the global health sphere, she's dealt with a lot of them. So she's had cholera, she's seen people with tuberculosis, she's had chicken pox numerous times, um, and she had to deal with all these problems regularly as she was growing up, as if they were just common and normal. She tells me that, you know, at the same age that I am in college, um, she had all these illnesses and she was battling them, and having access to a primary care physician there is not something that's um, you know as regular as it is in a lot of places that we have here. So these were things that she just tried to deal with herself and treat herself with her family. And so growing up in Canada and having access um, to that universal healthcare that they have there whilst hearing this was just one of the things that kind of constantly woke me up to the discrepancy international between global health and kind of how unjust that was for you to be able to um, travel between nations and experience such a different way of dealing with these problems and such different systems. So I moved to the United States when I was um, eight years old and since then I haven't been covered properly because of the health insurance here and it's definitely um, it's just almost jarring to me the fact that you know in North America we have two of um, some of the wealthiest nations in the world but even between those two countries there's such large healthcare discrepancies and also I used to work near my university at a hospital downtown in Miami. So that was also like a huge eye-opening experience for me in terms of how policy is intertwined with health um, because I would go to the hospital um, and commute every day on public, the public transportation. Um, and right when I, would, when I would get on the public transportation, I was leaving from an affluent area right by the university. And when I would get off, I would get off in one of the most impoverished locations in the county. And so right outside the hospital, there would be homeless people sleeping. And there was um, like a makeshift opioid clinic made out of um, 
I think cargo carts for trains that would treat a lot of these people and seeing the inequity that could even exist within like a 15 mile radius was just so shocking to me and so knowing that you know even between Canada and here there's those inequities in the same location there's inequities and then there's I can't even imagine the discrepancy that exists worldwide um, especially the discrepancy that my mom's experienced so all of those kind of tied together to make me realize that regardless of what I do in the future in terms of policy, public health is always something that I kind of feel like I'm obligated and I have to focus on because it's just so prevalent in our daily lives, the importance of it and the impacts of it on vulnerable communities. Hmm. That's really powerful. Thank you both for sharing that. Um, Those are really, really amazing stories, both. And it just brings home for me kind of the profound interconnection, you know, between between all of these things and and something that I feel like I've learned from you and appreciated um, in this interview is doing the work in one's own area in one's own backyard um, at least speaking as somebody who grew up in the US um, it 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 feels a lot of times like when people talk about global health challenges it's like somewhere else you know it's, it's always kind of somewhere else and that's just obviously not true like that was happening in my own community as well and in all of our communities. But I think there is kind of a tendency to, to, to differentiate, to separate, to say that like all of our health is um, isolated or we, we're only individuals and your health is only just, you know, your behavior or your specific circumstances. But, you know, as, as infectious diseases prove, as a 15 mile bus ride proves as like all of these things prove like our our health is profoundly interrelated and you know and we're all um, enmeshed in these systems of of politics and economics and uh, and you guys have been uh, just very instrumental in trying to uh, do some of that very important back-end work of saying like okay in our context like what are the democratic processes that we can use to change the way that our tax dollars that our influence or whatever that is can be shifted and changed to create a more equitable world. Um, One of my favorite quotes that I think of when I think of the work we're trying to do with the Fund for Global Health is think global, act local, because sometimes you don't realize how much of an impact you can have just within your own local community. But if you if you have this global mindset and think about how, like you said, interconnected our world is, I think it can be a good motivation and reminder for all of us that our world is interconnected even if we feel so far away you know an issue you see across the world might also be right in your backyard like lena said you saw it 15 miles from where you were on that bus ride so if we all start to think globally and act locally we can try to work towards more equitable change in our own communities and also expanding it across the world I think also in uh, working on these sorts of things, getting uh, the perspectives and the stories and the background of different people is just so, so important because even within this conversation, we all come from different places and we have different experiences interacting with healthcare, but we interact with the same systems and we interact with the same overarching issues. And we're all interconnected in terms of kind of the overarching problems that uh, have been dealt with and in like the way that the different countries that we're from interact and so I think 
gaining the perspective of people from different places, along with gaining the perspective of people who are involved in different kinds of expertises and work. I think, like Maria was saying, it's so important to gain the perspective of medical students too on this, because you do have that very um, intensive knowledge on how these diseases are transmitted and how they need to be dealt with. And then I also think it's so important for people um, who are involved in policy to be on this, because um, like Jonas was saying, a lot of the times, um, even though people have and organizations have those that knowledge on like how to treat an ailment, a lot of it comes down to the way that they structure their program and the way that they regulate it and the policy that's tied to it. So having people of different backgrounds from different places, um, from different expertises is just so instrumental to this work. And I think that's um, really one of the ways that focusing on moving forward in the field of global health and advocacy, I think it'll really incorporate that. There's three things, three main things that you guys mentioned here. I think not only I learned and I will also want to, to put some light on and, and maybe like when I, after the podcast, I will share it with, uh, with the people that I work with at the hospital. Um, I think that one of the first things you guys say, it's not only receiving more fun, but it's also like the fun that we are receiving, make sure like we are making, we are having like good outcome. You are like making the difference between outcome and output. And I think that is extremely important, especially for us when we think like we cannot have the result that we want. We want to pull more, more, more and trying to do that. And I think the second thing that is extremely important that you guys are doing Many people believe like global health is just taking a plane and then go to Africa and try to fix Africa. But you guys are showing like here, I can do an impact. I can do something and then the impact everywhere. You see what I mean? Like here, there's so much to do that can also change the world. And I think that is extremely important. Like the reason I, I, I'm trying to reinforce that is because for people living in the global south, there's that sense of... Um, white savior complex when people come to your country trying to save you so you guys are trying to make the difference in the world but by taking action here and i think it's it's also uh something that we have to promote we have to promote that uh, people hey in spite of going to 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 africa why not advocate on a policy that keep those people in poverty like the policy so we can influence that and improve things uh, upstream and i think the third things that you guys mentioned here even though you didn't mention it but i could learn it it's like that sense of collectivism over individualism it's like health is not something like your, your only your behavior like but also it's a matter of the collectivity it's a matter of solidarity it's like if the environment where i'm living people are not healthy i'm not going to be healthy you see what I mean? It's like it's like I think that sense of health, uh, health is a is a public. Uh, I don't know if I can say public good, but in spite of like me trying to uh, show like oh I'm I'm going to take this action or that action just to 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 be healthier, but but upstream you can take action that can bring more health to the entire community, to the entire population, and I think those points are. A point that we don't often learn in medical school or nursing school or, or, or I, I don't know, but uh, but those are things like we should share with the next generation of of clinician, of decision maker, policy maker, so they can understand that all we are linked. 
together despite we live in different cultural world yeah i i I love what you're saying jonas about that and i i really like your emphasis on saying like we are right to critique neoliberalism we're right to critique um philanthropic capitalism we're right to critique the white savior complex and histories of colonialism and all these things and that's very that's very good to do and then we need to do the constructive work of saying like how do we make aid systems how do we make mutual solidarity across borders and within borders um and how do we uh create like a democratic world um that is you know takes the good of everybody all individuals all communities into account and and what does health look like inside of that and like how do our dollars and our influence and our uh systems of government and all these things like how are they interrelated and that's something that I've I've learned from um both you uh Lena and Maria today like so I'll, I'll be taking that away and so thank you both very much for for teaching us yeah thank you for having us it's been a wonderful conversation yeah thank you so much and i feel um personally empowered by everything you both have been saying um to keep pushing forward and to hopefully get other people to keep pushing forward along with us so thank you so much uh for providing us a voice on this platform and for also giving us uh your voice This is Social Medicine On Air, co-hosted by Brendan Johnson and Jonas Atlas. Produced by Brendan Johnson and myself, Raghav Goyal. Intro music credits to Savage on YouTube and outro and incidental music to Smith the Mister. And a huge thanks to Clara Brand for our logo and visual work. You can find her on Instagram at underscore off underscore brand underscore. If you would like to share your story on the podcast or have any questions at all, please reach out to us at socialmedicineonair at gmail.com or at Twitter at socialmedonair. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe, join our social media, and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean so much to us. Thank you so much for listening.